Hey, good morning. Man, I'm so glad that you guys are here. Um, hey, would you do me a favor? Uh, I don't know if the, the, any of the worship team is in here, but man, they just do a fantastic job. Steve is filling in this morning, and yeah. They, they do fantastic, and the tech guys in the back, um, the, the, the te- yeah, they've got tech guy on the front, too. Um, they just, like, they help everything so much. Like, they, they, help, get us, they help get us into a heart of worship, um, and worship is not just the music, um, but they help create an atmosphere for us to worship and lead us into that place. And so we were just riding on the coattails of what they've already done, and so they, we, they've led us into worship and song. Um, now we're going to begin to um, worship and the uh, speaking and the hearing of God's word and the teaching of it as well. And so um, we're going to invite the Lord into that space. And so um, would you open up your Bible to Mark chapter 11? Um, if you're new here, um, just know uh, that we dive into the word. Um, bring your Bibles along with you or uh, a, something that you can pull it up on, a, an iPad or um, some kind of device. Um, but, we, but we like to get into God's word and see how it meets us where we are. Uh, so Mark chapter 11, and uh, let me pray and just invite the Lord to do his work here. Lord Jesus, um, we're here. Um, we're going to read your word. We're going to talk about your word. And I pray as um, a preacher, teacher uh, of your word, Father, that you would just speak through me, that um, whatever you want to say, that's what comes out. Um, and for those of us in the room, uh, Father, who uh, are here to hear from you, I pray that you would open up our ears, um, that you would let us hear what you have, give us eyes to see in the scriptures what you want to apply to our lives. Um, Father, uh, we don't want just information, but we want information that leads us to transformation, I pray, uh, through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So we're in Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're continuing on in our Tethered series. Uh, We've been hanging out there for a while uh, now, and what we've wanted to do is we want to see um, these uh, men of God who are learning to follow Jesus. And they're learning that as they stay connected to him, that's where true life is going to be. So Jesus is bringing these 12 guys along, and as they're going along, they're learning. Uh, They're immature when he grabs them, and they're maturing spiritually as they go, and they're learning to trust Jesus. And so as we follow along in his word, I think it's true of us too. As immature believers, we are learning to grow up in the faith to where we establish roots, and then we're able to grow fruit on our trees so that others might grow in Christ as well, and so they might be established. Uh, And so we're just watching these men hang out with Jesus and grow so that we might be able to grow too. If you've got something to write on there, I want you to write the word expectations. Expectations. I was reading somewhere uh, this week, and uh, it said expectations are like a high dive. Um, The higher they are, the longer the fall is. Um, The higher they go, the, the more... I forgot to take my phone out of my pocket, guys. And it is buzzing and it's driving me nuts. Sorry. Um, the, the high expectations are like high dives. The higher the expectation is, the longer the fall is going to be and the harder the fall might be as well. And the truth is about expectations is that we all have them, right? Um, whether they're realistic expectations or unrealistic expectations, it doesn't matter. We all have them. Um, when you went to bed last night, there was the assumption or the expectation unverbalized that you're going to wake up this morning, right? Like, you, like I'm going to go to bed, I'm going to, I'm going to wake up. You expected, if you've got kids, that they were going to get ready to come to church this morning. Some of you who are maybe new to church or new to this church, um, you have expectations of what this church is going to be like or what any other church 
um, that you're around is, is going to be like. You've got expectations on how long this message is going to be or how long it should be, right? If, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a husband, you've got expectations of your wife. If you're a wife, you've got expectations of your husband. If you um, have kids, you've got expectations of your kids. Your kids have expectations of you. It's just across the board, we have them. And it's okay. Expectations are normal. Sometimes they work out, and sometimes they kind of fall off a cliff, and they get us into trouble a little bit. But expectations are normal. Um, So I just want to ask you, as you sit here, and you've heard that word about 20 times now, what are some of the expectations that you have? Some of the things that you verbalized to others? Some of the things that you have inside that nobody else knows but you're expecting out of them or out of them? What are some of those expectations? And I think the larger question on top of that is what happens when your expectations aren't met? Uh, Or let's say it another way. When you've got things that you've planned and things that you were expecting out of other people, when it doesn't come through the way that you expected it to come through, what happens then when your plans don't come through? When it all kind of falls apart? I don't know if you know this yet, if you've been reading ahead, or if you just already know this from the scriptures, um, but according to Mark here, as we are in the beginning of chapter 11, there are only two miracles left before the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus, which that is the miracle of all miracles, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Hope we all believe that. And so in Mark, we're running out of miracles, there's two, and then there is Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. And ironically, if you just want to know, because we're going to get to them, it's, one is like cursing a fig tree, and then it just like not having any fruit anymore. And then the other one is uh, he cuts a dude's ear off, or somebody cuts a dude's ear off, and then Jesus comes by and like, let's put that back on there, like chill out. Like th- those are the two that are left, and then the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what people are starting to expect out of him. Jesus shows up, he heals some people, maybe he does a few like um, casting out of demons and does some um, uh, teaching with power that, that nobody has ever seen before, but there's miracles every time that Jesus shows up somewhere, and then he just kind of moves on. So people are starting to expect that out of him. Even the disciples, I think, have, have become quite used to the miracles. Not that, they're, not that they're not amazed by them, or not that they aren't impressed by them anymore, they've just started to expect that out of Jesus. They've been hanging around him long enough, like, that's Jesus, man, that's what he does. Jesus does miracles. Um, But what happens when what you're expecting to happen and what somebody else is expecting to happen about the same situation differs? When you've got expectation how something's supposed to play out and another person has expectations how it's supposed to play out and you two are at odds with one another, what, what what happens then? Well... I've lived long enough to know that um, when there's a problem like this, there are two general responses when things don't go your way. The first one is that you you can just be crushed when things don't go your way, and you just kind of go into a corner and you cuddle up or you curl up, and, and you're mad and you're angry or you're frustrated or you're sad, or you're just completely defeated. Man, I put everything into that, and, and they don't see it the way that I see it, and it didn't play out the way that I thought it was going to play out. And so we just kind of cuddle in to a corner, and, and we, we shut down, and we're crushed. Or, I think another way, just a general way, there's all kinds of different ways, but a general way that we see this working out when things don't go your way is that people just tend to roll with the punches. 
They just trust that God has got something maybe better for them down the road, that he's going to open up another door, that, that, uh, that he might have something else for them. And so they don't get wigged out about it. It's like, okay, just kind of roll with it. Ashley and I, uh, we got married on July 1st back in 2006, and we had an outdoor wedding in Kansas in July. And it was beautiful, as, as I can remember it. Um, but I'll tell you, not everything went perfectly and according to plan uh, in the wedding. Now, for months, um, we spent time planning this thing, right? We spent hours upon hours in conversations, planning every little detail. Is there anybody in here who is getting married or just got married? Yeah. So details, right? Like there's a thousand of them, and sometimes he wants to be involved, and sometimes you don't want him to be involved. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a ton of things that go into it. What color the bridesmaids' dresses are going to be? How many you're going to have? Have you all noticed the difference in uh, wedding uh, attire since the 60s, 70s, 80s till we get to now? Like, how many of y'all ladies got married and you had poofs on your shoulders? Yeah. How many of y'all got married in pastels? Like, it changes over the time. Like, guys, half the time don't even wear tuxes anymore. Like, it's just, it's, it's pants and suspenders, right? Like, it, it, everything has, has changed. And so we're working through all those, um, those, those details. How many bridesmaids are we going to have? What color of dresses are going to be? Um, who's going to wear a tux? Who's not going to wear a tux? What kind of food are we going to serve? Um, where are people going to sit? Are we going to get the group, everybody in the same place? Or do we have to make sure that she doesn't sit with him and he doesn't sit with her? How's that going to work out? What songs are going to be played? What are you going to walk down the aisle to? What's your dress going to look like? All of that stuff. And we were planning the perfect wedding. We had expectations of what that wedding was going to look like. And then on the day of the wedding, things changed. At least two tuxedos for my guys didn't fit. Um, one of the tuxedos, uh, the guy, like, you know, the pants, they have like the little snaps on the side that like, that's your belt. You cinch them. It was broke. So he had to make sure that he held onto his pants throughout the whole wedding so that his pants didn't fall down. All right. And, and the ring bearer decided that he wasn't going to wear uh, the black shoes that came along with the tux. And nobody knew this. When he was coming down the aisle, he had on red Converse All-Stars, which turned out being kind of cool, but like he just did his own thing. It's not what we had had planned. We had ordered a three-level cake, you know, it's like going to be awesome and pretty. And when we saw it walking in, it was like leaning like the Tower of Pisa. We're like, what is that? Tasted good, though. My responsibility was to show up and to bring the marriage license. I forgot the marriage license. And so somebody had to go back and, and get it. And did I mention that the wedding was outside in July. It was 101 degrees on our wedding day. We were handing out waters, hoping people didn't pass out. They got on pants and long sleeves. Um, we had expectations of what that day was gonna look like. Almost nothing went according to plan. But you know what? At the end of the day, she still came down the aisle. Ashley still looked amazing. We both said, I do, and we got married. And it was a perfect day. And so when I'm counseling young couples, I, I tell them, you know what, you guys are going to plan the perfect wedding. It's, it's going to be beautiful and everything's going to be awesome, but I want you to know not everything is going to go according to plan. It's going to be beautiful, but there are going to be some hiccups uh, along the way. Now, when things don't go the way that you planned or the way that you expected, how do you respond to that? That's what I want to look at in uh, Mark right now. We're going to read through the passage here, 
And I want you to keep the idea of expectations in the back of your mind, okay? Okay, chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. All right, so we've got Jesus now, and he's getting close to Jerusalem here. And I think something um, needs to happen. I think we need to take note of something here, um, that we're listening to the gospel of Jesus through Mark's writing here. And Mark here, he's beginning to shift um, uh, what's going on in Jesus' life. Right now, right now, up until now, Jesus uh, has been having this incredible time with people around him. He's spent a ton of time with people. And now that door is actually beginning to, to close. And now he's beginning to focus not so much on large crowds of people, but he's going to start focusing on the, the inner crowd, the disciples that have been following him around. And um, he's going to be setting his mind to the cross. Now we know Jesus, he's always had his mind to the cross, but Mark is now, he's intentionally focusing him towards Jerusalem. And uh, the cross is there waiting for him. Now, if you want to think about it like this, he's been doing ministry with people all the way up till we get to chapter 11. And now from chapter 12 on, we're going to see Jesus doing ministry uh, for people. Um, he's going to be doing it um, for the people, going in, in their place. And so he's heading to Jerusalem, and he knows what's going on. He knows what he's doing, but not everybody else knows what he's doing. And so everybody else has different expectations for what Jesus is supposed to do than what Jesus has for himself. And what Mark says here in verse 1 is that Jesus stops in a place called Bethany. Now, if Bethany sounds familiar to you, it should because you've heard several stories of the scriptures. Are you familiar with uh, Mary and Martha? Um, uh, one of them was uh, a busybody, uh, just like getting, getting everything done. And one of them just was, I'm going to sit at Jesus' feet. And then there was their brother Lazarus who uh, was raised from the dead. He died and came back, and they said, well, you got to come help my brother. Do you, you all remember those stories? Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they are from Bethany. And somehow these three have become dear to Jesus. They are his friends, and they are loved. The, the time that we see some of the most emotion out of Jesus in the scriptures is when Lazarus was dead. And, and so there is a tight connection to these people and a tight connection with Bethany. And so here he is. He and the disciples are there. And to be honest, Bethany is beautiful, guys. It's absolutely beautiful. It's tucked right into the, the Mount of Olives. It's just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. And so when you look off the hill, you look down through the Kidron Valley, you, you're going to see the temple. You're going to see the area of which Jesus is going to be walking into in just a couple of days or tomorrow, according to the scriptures. 
It's gorgeous. It, it's gorgeous. Uh, I had the, the honor of being able to go there uh, right before our wedding, actually. Uh, we got married in July, and on June, uh, I was able to go to Israel and see a lot of the places that we read about in Scripture. And looking over the valley, you know, when you go, I don't know if anybody's ever been to Israel, but when you go, there's, um, there's the traditional sites of where Jesus has been, and then there's the, the Orthodox sites and all that, and they've got or, or, ornate stuff everywhere. Um, but then you look at hillsides, and you look at oceans, and you look at mountains in the area, like, my Savior was here. My, my Savior, I don't know if this traditional site is legit, but over here, somewhere on this hill, somewhere on the Mount of Olives, my Savior walked, and he knelt down, and he prayed. Um, and this area is pretty close to um, where Jesus would go, and he would pray uh, in uh, the garden not too long from now. And so he's in Bethany. So while they're there, Jesus sends a couple of disciples. Um, and it's a very interesting mission that he sends them on. He sends them into the village. In the first two verses, uh, he sends them out and, and, he, and he tells them, hey, as soon as you go into the village, there's going to be a, a colt that's tied there. Uh, and what I want you to do is I want you to untie it and I want you to bring it back to me. And if anybody says anything to you, you just tell them I sent you. <laughs> tell them it's for me. And I'm like, oh, okay. okay. Um, so what we need to see here is like this is a colt. That's intentionally a colt here. Um, and a colt is um, the, the, young, the youngster of the donkey, right? It's, it, it's, it's like a baby donkey, right? Y'all people who do farming and all that kind of stuff, a colt, donkey, small, foal. Um, this particular one has never been ridden, okay? It's important. It's gonna, we're going to see it uh, be important in a minute. Now that seems interesting for Jesus to say something like this. Go find a colt that's never been ridden, untie it, and if anybody says anything, tell them that it's, it's for me. Now, here, here's where I think the story is a little bit weird. I want you to think about this from the disciples' perspective. Jesus is talking to them in what is the middle of the day, right outside of Jerusalem. And he's telling them to go into Bethany and, and to gently borrow somebody else's animal. Okay? Now, stealing in our culture is not okay. It's against the law. But it's not just against the law in our culture, it's against the law in almost every culture. You're just not supposed to take something that doesn't belong to you. And so Jesus says, go in to the town, take the colt, if anybody asks, tells them, tell them it belongs to me. Now, I'm not saying that this is right, and I'm not saying that it's wrong necessarily, but I, I would have been like, hey, could you just wait for the sun to go down just a little bit so that I have a chance of getting out of there without getting caught? Like, can, can we do that? But Jesus says, Go get the colt, bring it here to me. Now, two things I want to point out about this part of the story. Um, there was a colt, this is a colt, and Jesus knew that that colt was going to be there. So why is a barnyard animal so important in this story? Something, again, that we need to know about our Bible is that every single bit of it, every word, every detail, every prophecy, all of it has always been intending to point to Jesus. Even when the Jewish people read it 3,000 years ago, although they didn't understand it yet, it was intended to point them to a God who was bringing a Savior in his son, Jesus. It was intended to point to him. And now every time that we open up our scriptures and we read it, every single word of it is intended to point us to Jesus so that we might be able to have a relationship with him. Every word is important to us. So little statements like a colt that's never been ridden, that's important. And why is it important? It's important because in the Old Testament, according to the Mosaic Law, animals that had no blemish, animals that hadn't been ridden, animals that hadn't been put to work for anything yet, they were to be set aside 
and they were going and, and to, to um, be dedicated for some kind of special purpose. And right now, the owner of that colt, these disciples who are going to go get that colt, they don't know this yet, but that colt is going to set apart. Uh, it's, going to, it's been set apart for a special purpose. That colt is about to carry Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's going to fulfill a prophecy that was told a long time ago in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, which says the Savior is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to come in on a colt, the foal of, of a donkey. And so this colt is important that it's there and that when they go see it, it's, it's there. The second thing that we need to notice here is that Jesus knew that that colt was going to be there. Now, he had not yet been there. He'd been in Bethany, but on this occasion, he did not know that that colt, I mean, he, nobody else knew that. The, he knew that it was there. Okay, so why is that important for us? He's already shown his power in magnificent ways. He's done miraculous things, miracle after miracle after miracle. So they have seen his power. Now he's showing them that he knows things that nobody else knows. That he's able to look into something that they can't see and see that something's there. Um, he knows all things. In theological terms, we call that omniscience. It means that he is all-knowing, that God is all-knowing. And the only one that the Jewish people believed that knew everything was God himself. And that's the point here. That, that's, that's the point. Um, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is the one that they've been with. He knows all things. But why is that important for you and me? Why, why is it important for you and me to know that there was a cult hanging out uh, in Bethany and that Jesus said it was there and he knew it was going to be there? Here's why it's important. We want to know that our Savior, the one that we follow, that he's just not shooting from the hip. That he's just not winging it as he goes. That God the Father hasn't just spun things into existence and just went hands off and like, I wonder how this is going to play out. No, he is in control of those things and he knows those things. So for you and me, this is important because the thing that you're going through right now, he knows about it. And not only does he know about it right now, he knew about it back then. And the thing that you're not yet going through, that you're probably going to go through at some point, he knows about it. And so when you walk through it, it's not like he's just like hands off in blinders. He knows. And there's a comfort in the fact that we serve a Savior, we follow a Savior that's just not shooting from the hip. And so the disciples, they do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. They go find the colt, they untie it, and they bring it to Jesus like he asked them to do. Look at verse 4. This is how this plays out. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? I think that's reasonable to ask, isn't it? If that was yours. And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They show up, they untie the colt, the owner comes out and says, hey, what are you doing? And they're like, uh-huh, Jesus told me to come here and get this. And they just say, okay. I wonder if, if culturally, we were talking in our staff meeting this week, we were just shooting around some ideas. I wonder if culturally there was this, this sense of um, mi casa es su casa, right? My house is, is your house. My colt is your colt. If you need it, borrow it, take it. But when you bring it back, put the keys under the door so I'll, I'll know that it's back, okay? I, I wonder if culturally that, that was common because it says that Jesus told him that he would immediately uh, bring it right back. So we don't get the backstory we, or the, the front story. We just know that the colt goes into Jerusalem with Jesus and we never hear the colt again. I'll just make a transition here as I think Mark is making the transition. They're about to get into Jerusalem. The temple's in Jerusalem. 
The religious authorities are in Jerusalem. This is the, the, the religious hub of, of Israel. And Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? He's already told the disciples three separate times. He says, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to die. I'm going into Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to die. Hey, I'm going into Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to die. He knows exactly what's going to go on. But these disciples... And every crowd that's been following them around, they see the miracles. Miracle after miracle after miracle, they see it. And so this doesn't look like a guy who's about to die. This doesn't look like a guy who's about to be betrayed and go to a cross. This looks like a guy who's about to sit on the throne and rule forever in Israel. And that's what they're expecting. So expectations start popping up. Expectations from the crowd. Expectations from the disciples expectations from everybody around and so that's what you see you see uh that the ex there's the crowd has expectations the disciples have expectations they don't even, they still can't get in their mind the fact that jesus said he's going to die right you remember when peter like jesus says this and peter's like no 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 you're not going to die and then jesus is like hey get behind me satan because you're not going to be able to stop me from doing what my mission i'm set towards like they had their idea of what jesus was going to do too and they still can't get their mind around it and then jesus has expectations of himself for his mission so let's start with the crowd there's two disciples they come back with a colt and then the few disciples scripture says throw their cloaks over the colt and they were making a saddle for jesus they, they were comforting the ride that he's going to be riding into jerusalem and um so he's riding in and they're walking in beside of him and now outside of jerusalem this place is going nuts on, this, on the hillside of Bethany. They're throwing down their cloaks. They're waving palm branches and other branches. They're putting those down on the ground as well. And it is just like, I think, controlled chaos on the side of, of the hill. And unless you're from this area and you understand the first century culture, this wouldn't make any sense to us. And so when we read it, like we read like, hey, this is Palm Sunday. We, we do this thing. But like, unless we understand the culture, it's, we're a little bit far removed. So in the first century... When a king or an authority was getting ready to come into town, they, they would be met by a huge entourage of people to welcome them into the community. They would celebrate uh, in a big way um, because they wanted the official, the government, the, whoever was coming in to feel like they were welcomed into that place. It was like a huge welcome parade. Now, from our perspective, when, uh, if, just to get our minds around this, when the president of the United States shows up into a community, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, don't vote, it doesn't matter. When the president of the United States shows up into a community, there are barricades that get placed up. There are huge crowds that begin to show up, and people are waving flags, and it becomes a big deal because they are recognizing that there is a ruler here. There is an authority figure here that has control and that we are, are under. It's a big deal when they come to town. And so when Jesus is going into Jerusalem and he's heading out of, of Bethany, this whole parade is this magnificent display of what their expectations are for Jesus. They are saying, this is our king. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And when they think about him as a king, that comes with all kinds of expectations. Because what's a king supposed to do? A king is supposed to rule and reign, right? They're supposed to bring equity and justice. They're supposed to bring peace. They're supposed to overthrow any government that tries to get in the way. And they're supposed to go in and get rid of all the bullies so that this group of people can be established, right? So this crowd, they're pumped. 
waving palm branches. They're yelling in excitement. This is our guy. This is our king. This is our savior. And Jesus is riding in. And he is their king. He is the one that they've been waiting on. But he's not like anything that they were expecting. Remember, let's go back to the colt again. He's riding a donkey. Why, why, why do we keep going back to the donkey here? If you're expecting your savior to come in and to take out the government, you're not expecting him to come in on a donkey. You're expecting him to come in on, on a horse and to do some business. Because culturally, in times of peace, kings rode donkeys. Like, everything's easy breezy. But then when things become a little bit more distressed and disturbed and the wars begin to kick up, they get on their horse and their war horse and they come in and charging with other um, uh, soldiers and troops along with them. But Jesus is on a donkey. This is how he's coming in. So what's that mean? It means that he's not there for battle. He's not there for a, um, a coup to overthrow the government. He's got other things in, in mind. And long before any of this ever went down, remember how we said all scripture was written to point to Jesus? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Savior. And Zechariah 9.9 wrote this a long time ago, and we just hinted at it in a minute ago. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is already prophesied about him. And here it is now, it's being lived out. And this is exactly how he comes in. And the people are yelling in the end of verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Because there's so much excitement in these words. And packed in all of that, there is immediacy. They're expecting this to happen right now. So let's work through this. Everybody with me? Okay. The word Hosanna here, it means, oh, save us now. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. We want you to save us right now. It's a shout of praise asking for deliverance. And then you go on, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, during the Passover... There were all kinds of traditions, and they're entering into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And around the Passover, uh, all kinds of things um, were wrapped around that, and there were traditions on it. One of them involved this very saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, those words would be recited as part of the Passover liturgy as they would sit around the table together. It's also um, one of the ways that the Jewish community would welcome visitors from out of town. Blessed, um, what, how's, it, how's it say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it was a welcome for, for visitors. Here in verse 10, we read, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That means that this crowd is beginning to identify Jesus as the son of David. Do you remember what the words that were so important of last week with, with uh, Bartimaeus? When he was yelling out to Jesus, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He identified him as the king who was going to sit on the throne. And this crowd is doing the exact same thing. This is the king that they were expecting. But he wasn't going to do what they were expecting. And then we read, Hosanna in the highest. This meant, oh, you who lives in heaven, save us now. You're here, you came from heaven, now do your work. 
deliver us from what's going on around us. They are calling on God to remove the oppression that's in their life. And they believe that right now, this man riding in on a donkey, that he's the one to do it. That he's going to do it. This is how it would have looked when they're, when they're uh, yelling these praises out. Uh, it would have been like this call and response. On one side of the room, or one side of the road, you have a crowd of people, and they're yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then on the other side of the road, you have the, another group of people who are yelling, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so you've got two groups on the side of the road. One is yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And it is a beautiful sight to see. And if you need help getting your minds around this, like we go to basketball games and we go to football games. We do all kinds of shouts and cheers. And it would be like, you know, uh, we will, we will. Uh, uh. Yeah, so you have a group of people in the stadium on one side of the court. Like, we will, we will. And the other side, they're like, rock you, huh? We will, and rock you. And it's back and forth. It's this call and response that's going on. It is beautiful on the side of Bethany because there is praise that is going from their lips. From the mood of the passage, though, you, you can see that all of their political hope is wrapped up into this moment. Everything they expect out of the government, they, they, they think Jesus is coming to do. Their king has finally come to set things right. They're expecting a conquering king. But Jesus didn't come to be a conquering king. He came to be a suffering servant. That's the difference. He has different expectations than what the people have of himself. Jesus expects that he's going to come and he's going to lay his life down. People expect that he's going to come and he's going to sit on the throne and take out the lives of those who are in charge. And we know that we've been approaching this tethered series, looking at it from the perspective of, of the disciples. What are they learning from Jesus? How are they learning to stay connected to him? What are they seeing in Jesus? And so in this moment, when they're seeing all this go down on the side of the hill, what are they seeing in Jesus? What are they learning about Jesus? Guys, these aren't just fishermen. Like when we think about the disciples, like, oh, they're just a, a, a group of ragtag guys who just don't know anything. No, they're fishermen, and that was a huge job. That was a huge task. But on top of just being fishermen, these were Jewish fishermen. Th these were um, teenagers who had grown up being taught the law. They knew the Torah. They knew the scriptures. I don't know how much these guys remembered of what they had studied I don't know how much, say, locked into their minds, but they were taught the scriptures, and they knew the scriptures. And I wonder how much of it they still remembered. Now, we, we know that um, these men, except for may, maybe Peter, um, but the rest of them, like, are in this teenage group of guys. And there's some immaturity that's got to get worked out. They've got to learn how to follow. So imagine what their perspective of, uh, per perspective of Jesus, the expectations that they have of Jesus as they're walking into the city with him. And there's all this cheering and all this fanfare. Can you imagine a teenager walking into that? Like, all this is for us? You're here cheering for us? This is amazing. I wonder if they started looking around and thinking, you know what? We might have signed up for something bigger than we ever expected. Yeah, we said we were going to follow Jesus, but I didn't think this, I didn't know this was going to happen. And, and this had to be the ultimate high point in their, in their lives, all the fanfare. They had to be like, yes, we were on the winning team. And I wonder if they started to put two and two together, that if when they hear the people shouting, 
if any of that started to click for them. Because right after this moment, and we're going to talk about these in the next couple of weeks, just after um, Jesus goes down into Jerusalem, um, Jesus is, is going to walk into the temple, and he's going to start tossing tables. He's going to start driving people out. <laughs> that doesn't make people happy. There's some anger that begins to fester. He's going to have even more challenged conversations with the religious leaders. And the heat that Jesus has already been under is going to become to a boiling point. And then you're going to see Jesus go to a cross and, and he's going to die. That's not what anybody was expecting. They were seeing all the cheering. They'd been seeing miracle after miracle after miracle. And they were expecting something different. At some point, they had to look at each other when all this other stuff, the fanfare is there. But when people start to turn on Jesus, there had to have been this moment of like, guys, what did we get ourselves into? What's happening right now? Everyone, even these disciples, were expecting this conquering king. They didn't expect wrinkles in the plan. Same crowd that's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is going to be the same crowd in just a few days that are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd has their expectations. The people have theirs, or the disciples have theirs. What about Jesus? Jesus knew what he was getting into. Jesus knew what was coming. He wasn't coming to be the political leader to represent a certain party. He wasn't coming to be a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. That's, that's not what he was coming to do. Pastor Tony Evans says it like this, that Jesus wasn't concerned with restoring political power. He was bringing his kingdom in power. Jesus had a, a, a mission, and it wasn't political. It was divine. His mission was bringing heaven to earth, and they were beginning to collide with one another. The mission that he was on, the expectations that he had for himself, was that he came to defeat sin. He didn't come to defeat an army. He came to offer forgiveness, not just to defeat the Romans. He came to bring peace and to be peace for those who put their trust in him. And he came as a suffering servant. He didn't come as a conquering king. And he was going to conquer, but not in the way that they expected. He was doing it his way and not their way. And at the end of the day, God's way is always better. His way is always better than ours. Because when we look at Mark chapter 11, the beginning section here, it just shows us the expectations that people had of Jesus. They weren't being met by Jesus. And when those very expectations of Jesus, when they get shattered, it is the truth of who Jesus is that then becomes revealed. When those expectations fall apart, you begin to see actually who Jesus is and why he came. So what I want to do is I want to kind of turn this around to us again. And I want to ask you, we've seen everybody else's expectations. Again, what are your expectations for Jesus? What are you expecting out of him in your life right now? Because sometimes as Christians and as followers of Christ, we may have certain expectations of how God's supposed to act and what he's supposed to do in our lives. But these expectations may not always be what God's plans are for us. Those two things might be in collision with one another. We may have expectations of success and comfort and full bank accounts and, and lack of turmoil. We have all these expectations, but that may not be what God has for you right now. When Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, we find out that our expectations and God's plans may not always line up together. They may not be on the same tracks. We may have our own ideas and our own expectations and we may be bent towards God, but what if he wants to change our plans? What if he wants to change what we're expecting? 
Is there room in our lives for Jesus to do some work? Is there room in our lives for him to change our plans, for him to change our expectations? Because we may have our own expectations and our desires, but ultimately we've got to give way to what he wants to a point where we say, Jesus, I want what you want. My, ex- my expectations, I've held them, I've hold them, but at the end of the day, I want what you want because at the end of the day, your way is always better than my way. And that's not easy when we've been holding these expectations so high because they come crumbling down very hard. They hit the ground hard. And so is there room in, in who, who you believe Jesus to be in your life and how you're following Christ? Is there room for him to come in and, and, and to change your expectations? Here's the challenge that I want to give you. I, I want you to let go. <laughs> let go of your own expectations. Ooh, isn't that hard? Because we have spoken expectations. We expect to meet with God when we open up his word. We expect to, to meet with him when we pray. We expect to experience him in, when we um, uh, sing and worship. But then I think we've got these unspoken expectations that he has instantly going to heal my marriage, that he's instantly going to fix my um, banking woes, he's going to bring my kids back, he's going to make the road smooth, he's going to do whatever in the political realm. We have these spoken and unspoken expectations of Jesus. Is there room for you to just let him do his thing? Can you let go of it and let him lead you into those places? And we're going to jump into communion here. And when we see communion, we see uh, 12 guys, or 11 at least, who said, Jesus, I want what you want. I want to go where you want me to go, who said, you know what, my, I got my expectations, but I'm willing to allow you to change them. doesn't mean that it all goes perfect. You know, these guys bailed out a couple times on them. They come back and they, they follow. Uh, would the worship team go ahead and come up as we enter into communion? And You know, there's a moment where they're celebrating the Passover meal together. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and they were going to celebrate Passover together. Remember, he sent them to go prepare um, uh, the upper room. And they were getting ready to have the meal that we're getting ready to celebrate right now. And when they were sitting at the table, this was um, Hosanna. This was the one that they were expecting. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was their king sitting with them. And he sat with them and he said that one of you is going to betray me and, and all that. And then they all looked at each other like, you, is it me? Is it, who's it going to be? And, and then 11 of those guys at the table took what Jesus had to say to heart. He took some bread and um, he, he blessed it. And as he was blessing it, um, he said, this is my body, um, which, is, which is for you. Every time you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. And then at the same meal, he took the, the Passover cup. He took, he took the cup that had so much meaning in it. And then he gave it new meaning or he fulfilled the meaning in the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, um, drink it in remembrance of me. But he also told him that I'm not going to drink this again until we sit together in heaven and we dine together around the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, and so there was a, this, this huge, and let's look forward to that. So what I want to do is um, as we celebrate communion together, we've got four um, uh, tables set up. And you can go which, to whichever one's closest to you. I, w- I want you to just sit before you, before you get up and say, Jesus, I want what you want. What are the expectations I have of you? Just kind of do some work with him. If, if you're a believer, the table's open for you. If, you're, if, you, don't, if you haven't trusted Jesus, um, this isn't like exclusive for you. But like 
Um, this, is, this has been fulfilled in Jesus for us. And so maybe this is a moment where you just kind of sit and you say, God, um, I, I'm struggling to try to figure this out. I'm struggling with life. I'm trying to figure out if I believe. And that this might even be a moment where you say, man, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus steps into your life and then you get to have communion as the body of Christ together this morning. And so I'm gonna pray over um, the, the elements and then you are free to come to the table and grab and, and take them with, uh, by yourself or with your family um, as, you, as you wish. So Father, <clears throat> thanks for our time together. Uh, thank you that uh, we get to dive into your word and it's so rich for us and every word is important. And, um, but to be able to even look at it culturally to see what was going on there is just so sweet, God. So um, whatever it was of you just landed, if there's things that I muddied, I pray that you would clear up. Um, but Father, we just, we just wanna know you. We wanna, we wanna know your son, Jesus. We want what you want for our lives. Would you take our expectations would you bring them into reality with who you are and what you want to do in our lives and, and lead us into that place, Father. We can't do that on our own. We need your spirit. So do your work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.